Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hi. So this episode of Reasons to be Cheerful uh, was recorded live on stage in Liverpool. And we had a great time. We really did, didn't we? It was brilliant. Great audience. Yeah, it was was a good night. And we're doing it again. We're going to be in Bristol at the end of this week on Friday the 13th. No, no, no bad luck there. Oh, God. Given your track record with things (laughs) and my track record with people. Could could all go horribly wrong. It does not bode well. But, you know, uh, that, that's probably got an appeal in itself, hasn't it? It's true. If you want to come and see a calamity. So we're going to have guests, comedians, games, fun frolics, witty badinage. Yeah. All uh, in our, one of our favourite cities, Bristol. And if you're a venture capitalist and you want to come along and, you know, uh, invest in Ed's idea for make, make your, your own, own sandwiches, sandwich. you're, you're welcome to. I mean, you will have to buy a ticket like everybody else. Definitely. So um, the URL to buy tickets is bit dot ly stroke cheerful bristol it's at the anson rooms this coming friday friday the 13th where the anson rooms where lots of famous groovy bands have played the smiths radiohead massive attack amy winehouse biffy clyro the flaming lips i once danced on stage with the flaming lips dressed as a dog at least it's better than the sort of pantomime horse thing you never went through the pantomime horse thing. not yet though, but, but maybe in the future mm. i can i just make clear we are not available as the two ends of a pantomime horse for this christmas i am definitely available as one end of a pantomime yeah, okay, horse though, but Ed is refusing sunshine to, you can be refusing to play you ball. can be the end on your own yeah. i mean honestly <laughs> Anyway, so that is coming up uh, on Friday. There, at... there are a few tickets left. You need to buy them. Yes. To come along, keep us company. Exactly. In Bristol. Bit.ly. With the crepes. Bit.ly <laughs> stroke cheerful because Bristol. Because ni- you can buy nice crepes in Bristol. At Bristol Temple Meads. Yeah, I think I hope it is Bristol Temple Meads. You keep saying this. John Hegley used to do a poem, which was, From Edinburgh Waverley Street to Bristol Temple Meads, you don't have to change your underwear, but you have to change at Leeds. Oh, that's got something going for it anyway that's bristol and this is liverpool this is reasons to be cheerful live from mountford hall liverpool please welcome to the stage ed Miliband and jeff lloyd Thank you. Good whooping. Are you, are you happy with that whooping? Good whooping. 
how, how do you feel I, the whooping compares to London? Much better whooping than London, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is just rabble-rousing. You realise yeah, yeah. we're just rabble-rousing. I'm just currying favour with the audience, but much better whooping. No, genuinely, genuinely, much better whooping. It's very exciting to be here. We were just looking backstage. They've got all the posters of the great legendary music acts that have played here over the years, like the Smiths and the Buzzcocks. And Joy Division. And now they're reduced to us, I'm afraid. Yeah, so... Uh, Before we came on, Ed asked me if I had any hair product. Yeah, you're, I felt... You're worried I a, that you might be a bit bouffant. I felt I was a bit bouffant. And then Jeff tweeted that I felt I was a bit bouffant. Okay. Bouffant is a never a good way to describe someone's hair. It's a bit John Kerry, for those of you who know John <laughs> Kerry. He had very big hair. Anyway, I took the opportunity today to do... A, this is There'll be people from all parties here, so it's not a party political point, but I went and did a campaign stop in... Uh, Southport to support our excellent candidate Liz Savage. Uh, I, I would have loved to have gone to Southport, actually. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, Is that um, why you got a different train to me? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, he just portrays, he's just like a victim mentality. Right, anyway. Uh, so I went to Southport. It was fantastic with Liz Savage. We were doing this great photo with 60 of her party members. 60 is the sort of uh, demonstrator's estimate. It was probably 40. Uh, and and it was great. We were all standing on the steps, a spectacular thing. And, she, and I said, what shall we say? And she said, bacon butties. <laughs> I really liked her up to that point, I must say. Uh, no, anyway, she's a, she's a great person. Right, should we move on? Uh, to what we're going to be talking about. So it's regeneration, right? Yes. Kind of coming off the fact that lots and lots of places have faced big cuts uh, since 2010. Uh, big cuts in their budgets. But... Some of them, including here in Liverpool, but elsewhere, have been showing that there are ways, despite cuts, and it would be much better if there was more money, obviously, that they can regenerate their communities. And I think how you regenerate communities is obviously an incredibly sort of important and difficult thing because it's been done badly, even with money. But the folks we've got on tonight have shown in different ways how it can be done really well. So first, we're going to be hearing from Theresa McDermott. She is a board member of the Granby uh, Land Trust, and she runs the Granby Four Streets Market. Now, that is, Granby is just two miles from here in Toxteth. She's going to be talking to us about her experience of living there for the last 30 years, how it was seen as sort of hopeless and not possible to regenerate it, and they've done extraordinary things uh, in the last five years or so. Then we're going to be hearing from Councillor Matthew Brown, who is the Cabinet Member for Social Justice, Inclusion and Policy Initiatives at, in Preston. And some of you will know about what Preston have been doing, but it's incredibly exciting what they've been doing, not just uh, regenerating and keeping money in Preston that's being spent by public authorities, but springing up all kinds of co-ops and other things. So he's going to be talking about that. And then to sort of, if you like, give us an overview, we've got Neil McKinroy, the chief executive of CLEES, which is the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. He's going to be talking about what works uh, in this area. And I think, you know, how you regenerate, how you bring how you tackle the north-south divide, but how you tackle divides within regions, because I think the divides within regions are almost as important as the divide between regions, is, is absolutely fundamental. So that's, and, and there are many reasons to be cheerful. And then, in addition to that, we'll be joined by a brilliant comedian, Tez Ilias, um, who just had a show on Radio 4, which you can still get on iPlayer, and he's going to be going on tour around the country. And he's got a toothache, so you've all got to be incredibly nice to him. He's had root canal work. Yeah. yeah. But he's, he's extremely funny. We should do um, some reasons to be cheerful. So what's yours? Uh, mine is uh, I took the train today from London. As we're pulling into Lime Street, the driver comes on. I'm thinking, this is great, an actual you know, human being instead of a recording. And he says, uh, welcome to Liverpool, Lime Street. Um, and just, just before you get off, maybe you're having a good day and you'll enjoy this if you are. Maybe you're not having a good day and uh, maybe this will cheer you up in that case. Uh, let's, uh, let's have a sing. Uh, everybody join in. And then he played Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life oh. over the tannoy. That was great. So that's my, that's my reason to okay. be cheerful. Right. Okay, mine is altogether more sombre, I'm afraid. It's a tragedy that has happened, but it's got a hopeful um, element to it. And, and that is around what happened in Florida and the terrible shooting that there was at, at Marjorie Stoneham High School. You know, there have been lots and lots of terrible gun crimes uh, in America. Generally, there's a sort of cycle to these things, and I'm not the sort of person who's first pointed this out, where the crime happens, 
Uh, the president says thoughts and prayers with the victims. Uh, people mumble about doing stuff, and then nothing happens, and then another gun crime happens. That the, that the worst three or four atrocities out of the top five or six have happened just in the last few years in America, and nothing has happened. And you know, President Obama witnessed terrible tragedies on his watch. Nothing happened. And so there are many, many reasons to feel incredibly despairing, as I did, uh, about whether anything could change. But something has changed. Something has happened. And I want to just play you a brief video. If the president wants to come up to me and tell me to my face that it was a terrible tragedy and how it should never have happened and maintain telling us how nothing is going to be done about it, I'm going to happily ask him how much money he received from the National Rifle Association. It looks like for the first time, these kids are having an effect. And the reason I sort of um, showed this clip and the reason why it makes me cheerful out of a terrible tragedy, and I think it does relate to Liverpool, is I think it shows that often, even when things look incredibly hopeless, the power of ordinary people to actually change things is remarkable. And it makes me think of Hillsborough, because in relation to Hillsborough, it wasn't the politicians who got closer to justice for the families. Uh, It was the families themselves, and it was the relatives themselves. And I think that is a reason to be optimistic, which is the power of ordinary people to change things. So that's my reason to be cheerful. going to bring our first guest out. Please welcome Teresa McDermott. <laughs> Teresa, hello. Hello. Now, that's not a Scouse accent. You worked that out from one word. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a very finely attuned ear. Um, how long have you lived here? I've been in Liverpool since I was 18, so 38 years. How did you end up here? Um, I came up for college and um, married a Scouser, so I stayed. <laughs> and um, we're, we're, we're going to talk about um, Granby and the Granby Land Trust. And is that the area you've lived in fairly much the whole time you've been here in Liverpool? Pretty much. I've lived in Liverpool late all that time and for 30 years in Granby itself, yeah. So before we talk about um, what you, you've done there and what the community have done there, can you paint a picture a little bit of, of what it was like sort of historically? Um, when I arrived, Granby Street was still still thriving. I think there might have been a few shops closing. This was 1980, uh, but lots of shops with exotic stuff over the pavements and going back to the 60s and 70s, it was an amazingly busy street with um, a cinema, the first Tesco ever, um, and all sorts of shops from dairies to chandlers to uh, butchers and everything you can imagine, clothes shops too. So really busy thoroughfare. So how did you see that start to change then? It was... Very gradual at first, as unemployment kicked in seriously in the uh, early 80s, the shops began to close, 
Then the houses started to empty around the time that one of the housing associations publicly withdrew, said they wouldn't let their properties anymore in the area. And um, What was their rationale for that at the time? Uh, uh, feckless tenants, I don't know. Because what's really interesting is that the population of that area, the community, was really quite long-term quite stable community, people living in their houses for 35 years and then moving next door when they got married, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm not quite sure where that came from. There were some problems in the area generally, but certainly I didn't see when I lived there that the Granby tenants were part of that problem. And, and so, so after those changes started to happen, what happened to the area? It just became more and more desolate. Um, and actually, it was really depressing. I was my, I, actually I lived in a street which was demolished and moved to the next terrace, but that's kind of later on in the story. But we set up a, um, a residence association. This is in 1993. <laughs> Some of you weren't born, were you? Um, I wasn't. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was only just born actually at that point, <laughs> so he likes to believe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were just opposing demolition. We didn't... We had lots of ideas about what could be there, but they were trying to sort of divide... When I say they, at the time, we felt the housing associations were the enemy because they were trying to divide and rule between the tenants and the homeowners. Um, and that was a horrible game to play, really, because it was quite a tight-knit community, and why would you do that? Um, so basically saying to us, well... You, you've got to knock, let us knock your house down so that we can give room, build new houses so there's room for two cars to be parked for each house. And we're saying, but this is the lowest area of car ownership in the country, and you're saying each household is going to have two. It, it, it was just ludicrous. By 2010, in, that, in the four streets, which was around 200 houses... Yeah, there were around 60 occupied, and 30 right. of them were our terrace. So it was two-thirds basically unoccupied, more than two-thirds more than unoccupied. Two, yeah, yeah. And what happened then? Um, in 2010, um, I don't want to go into too much detail about housing policy, but when the Tory government came in, there was, prior to the Tory government, there was um, an initiative by Labour, which was a re- money for redevelopment in lots of the northern cities and Birmingham, Um, redevelopment could be knocking them down and building new ones or could be refurbishment of old properties but most of the local authorities took this to be oh great we can be given some money and just clear these areas out and Liverpool was quite ferocious on that one Um, so around 2010 it looked like we were going to lose well up until then it looked like we were going to lose our houses because of that the, the four remaining streets and then Weirdly, the Conservative government withdrew the money because of austerity measures, and it, it kind of did us a favour, but it wasn't anything other than they didn't want to spend money up north. So it was just kind of... Um, so around that stay, time, we uh, started to get back together again as a, as a different group because the Residents Association had closed down a couple of years before, had given up, and... Um, so a few of us got together. There were people who had started planting guerrilla gardening all around the area. Um, myself and my husband over there, we um, started painting up the windows opposite us because they were all bricked up. And uh, so we just painted them with curtains and things like that and vases and cats and things. I want to quote you to yourself. This is a great oh. quote. You said, oh. it was the spirit of, fuck, this is depressing. Let's make it a bit better. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> that that was in the Guardian on Wednesday last week, and I think if I've, if my mum and dad and stepmom were still around, I'd be mortified. <laughs> National press and Teresa said, "Fuck." Uh, and then she did it again. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> that was only on a podcast, and, and so uh, we, we won't edit that bit out. I'm afraid. Um, and so. What happened then? So, so two-thirds or more unoccupied, you know, you get the money's being cut. It sounds like it's just so bleak. What happened? But it's not bleak anymore. Okay. Um, so with the planting and the painting, and then we started setting up a little table sale, we 
decided just after the final initiative that the council tried to implement failed. It, they did try putting it out to tender to big developers. And after the, the final attempt failed, a couple of us went to see them. We wrote them a note. All, to the, all the chief executives said, we want to speak to you. We've got different ideas. We can do this differently. We can cut it up into smaller chunks so that no one housing company or provider has to take the financial risk of renovating really quite knackered properties. And um, it got us round the table, and they were a bit like, mm, yeah, well. And we were saying, well, give us some. Go on, give us 50. We'll do them. We'll get the money. <laughs> and um, they went, yeah, yeah, all right. We'll, 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 we'll arrange another date. Go away and do a business plan kind of thing. But the great thing was, and this was the game changer, was that we bumped into a millionaire. A millionaire? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, and now this is going to make it sound impossible for people to achieve what we achieved because this did change the council's mind because we said we had a backer. So he found you, and what happened then? Um, that was a game changer. The council said, OK, we'll give you some houses or sell you them for a pound. And the other housing associations came on board. So we were already formed as a community land trust by that stage. Now, just explain to people what community land trust is. Uh, I'm still trying to get my head around it. It comes from something that started in the States a while ago now. Um, It's around owning land, obviously, but it's not just about land, it's about community assets. It's got to be preserved for the community. That's yes, the basic concept. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, not, you do, it's not a charity. You can be a charity as well, but it's a not-for-profit, which means any profits go back into the community. Yeah, and so you form this community land yeah. trust, got the housing, got yeah. it done up. Yeah. And what, what happened next? <laughs> it's like that. Um, <laughs> what happened next? We won the Turner Prize. You won the Turner Prize. You won the Turner Prize. Uh, <laughs> your average experience of redevelopment. Well, uh, assemble the architects did, but that was because of our work with them, working together, the relationship. And what did they win the Turner Prize for? The nature of their relationship with us, because we, we had recruited them as our architects, but they, had, they, they shared our vision completely. They really, really understood what we wanted. We were really clear about what we wanted. They were well up for it, and it was a meeting of minds, really. And I know it's only a couple of miles from here, mm-hmm. so people should come and visit. Um, but tell us what people would see now and how it would feel different from before. Three of the four streets have been done up and are being lived in, and it's just brilliant. You can't imagine being in a street, unless you have done, uh, which is mostly empty, and then suddenly you've got children playing in the street, they're playing for the first summer after this happened. Actually, before everyone came in, we were going, oh, God, we're going to have neighbours. They, they might really get on our nerves. <laughs> it's true. So I'm, oh, God, this is all well and good. But, do we really? but it's great. It, it was such, such a nice sound hearing kids playing in the street and feeling like a community again. So it is amazing what they look like. And our houses in particular look good. We've only got 10 of them, but they, they're done very beautifully and tastefully. And they have all sorts of assembles work in them. So the fireplaces and the tiles and stuff like that. And can you tell us about the Granby Four Streets Market and what role that plays? Um, you run the Four Streets Market, yeah? Yes, my, with my husband. What's your husband's name? In Joe. <laughs> Joe. Shout out to Joe. Round of applause for Hello. Joe. <laughs> so it was set up by um, some of the women who were living on Cairn Street, Germany Street and on ours. And they just said, oh, let's just get a table out and sell the stuff from our attic. And this was when it was still derelict. This is 2010 or something. And then after a couple of years, it was getting to the stage of about 20 or so tables. And Joe and I took over at that stage because the people doing it then were exhausted and had up, we had other things to do. So since 2012, Joe and I have been leading on it. We obviously have volunteers who help us, but it's, the, it's now 86 traders. At the, at the peak of last summer, it was 86 traders, and it's brilliant. It, and the role it's playing, the main reason that we set it up in the first place was to cheer ourselves up, really get together as a community and sit and have a cup of tea and sell, give each other each other's rubbish. (laughs) Um, But then as it got a bit bigger and people from outside the area started coming in and a few people have said it's like a mixture between a market and a festival because we we often have live music or events going on. And um, what it... What we wanted to do was bring life back to the area, but also 
remind people we existed in the very early days. But now we've moved on to Granby Street itself, so we've had to go legal. Um, we can't just do it where we fancy. And highways are involved, and they put road close signs up. And the council's and, been quite supportive. Oh, now, they've been yeah. great, really good. And they've been paying for that road closure right. for 18 months. Right. Um, but it's now got much, much bigger. It's um, something that everyone looks forward to. It's all year round now, once a month. And it's exhausting. <laughs> and well, what's next then? <laughs> well, what we want the market to do is to kickstart the local economy. So that's where our vision has kind of always been, which is we have traders at the market who've started to set up their own businesses. Previously, they were unemployed. And now they're setting up, they're gradually experimenting with what works, what they can sell. And um, it's fantastic to see. And we started making a few small loans, business loans, so people could buy the first stock or they could pay for their insurance or whatever. And then there was no pressure on repayment until they were bringing in a profit. But we want to up that to, we want to apply for the money to, to be able to do that on a bigger scale. And we do have a member, one of our tenants is a business advisor, so he can do that for free. He can give them business support and advice. And we also, the, the council are going to pass on some of the houses to, sorry, the shops, four corner shops, which are empty, that we would like to use for these businesses. So they would have trialled the business, got used to it, share the space, have their own shop. And, and, and apart from Find a Millionaire, what would, you, what would you say is the most important lesson that you would l- draw from, from this experience? Um, if I was advising anyone doing the same thing, um, you need complete tenacity and a, and a really, really strong vision. Um, you need an amazing fundraiser. Uh, and actually campaigning is a really difficult thing because it's easy to be angry. And if you're angry all the time and you're, you're, you're shouting at local government or national government, you're quite often not going to get what you want um, because they'll just go... They'll just close down. You have to maybe sometimes recognise the the kind of the limits they're working within. So that's something that's worth remembering. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Teresa, thank you so much for um, sharing your story with us. Please, big round of applause for Teresa, please. <laughs> Teresa. Stay there because I want to to join the conversation. I now want to introduce Councillor Matthew Brown, who is the Cabinet Member for Social Justice, Inclusion and Policy Initiatives from Preston. Matthew Brown, everyone. So, Matthew, I'm sure lots of that um, story resonates uh, with you, but tell the audience and and those listening at home a little bit about the Preston experience, just so people can get their heads around that to begin with. It's a very fascinating uh, situation. It does kind of like fit in with the global situation because every person in this audience, their family, uh, they've paid £4,500 to bail out the economy 10 years ago. And since then, um, things aren't getting better for most of us. So Preston was pretty much fitted into that because we waited a long time for money to come in from big global developers, one of which was Lendlease, which has caused a lot of controversy recently. And then after 13 years of waiting for this money to come in, we realised that it wasn't going to happen because they pulled out after the main anchor store withdrew from the scheme. So we thought, well, just like, just like uh, the lady, lady next door, we need to be more resilient about what we're trying to achieve, you know, and do it ourselves in some way. When were you elected to the council? It was 2002. Yeah, right. So it's 15 years ago. Right. Yeah. But I was only elected into the cabinet in 2011, so I had a bit more of a senior and role. And 2011 was when the Lendlease deal collapsed, basically. It did, yeah. The scheme was called Tithe Barn. It was a big regeneration scheme, and it basically didn't happen, you know, because of the economic crash at the time. So after that, we looked at what we had already. And within Preston, we're quite blessed because we've got the headquarters of two councils, we've got a university, we've got housing associations. So we're trying to restructure our local economy around them. So basically, most of them are paying a living wage, which is something you, you promoted yeah. yourself as Labour yeah. leader, you know, and they're buying from local suppliers. So we've got £75 million, which has been put back into the Preston economy, just by these big public sector institutions going through the books and buying locally. And, and just explain to people here, because lots of people are talking about Preston. You had John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, at a conference recently. You've been featured in the national newspapers. Just... Tell us, just sort of in simple terms, 
What is it that you're doing around, in particular, this quite, what sounds like a, quite a techie concept of procurement, I think I'm right in saying, and the way the council and other public sector bodies spend their money? What are you doing that's different from what everyone else is doing? We're trying to keep money in the city. It's as simple as that, you know. We're seeing that we've got huge pockets of deprivation still, still huge challenges. We've got austerity, which is continuing. And we're making sure that the institutions like our universities, councils, hospitals, where they're buying in goods and services, it's going to have a benefit and it's going to create jobs and keep money in the community. Who does it mean they're spending their money with and who does it mean they're not spending their money with? Yeah, I mean, what we're doing is we're supporting local businesses, so it's small family-owned businesses, you know, lots of them. They keep wealth in the community, independent traders, but we're also looking at forming worker-owned businesses. So we're going to be we're going to have two worker co-ops that are going to be formed in the next few months. And one of them's going to be around food, the other's going to be around IT. And there they're going to create jobs and actually be linked to what the public sector's buying. So it's quite exciting because it means that there's more democracy in the local economy. So instead of outside investors deciding, you know, what happens, we're deciding ourselves as a community. You know, and you look around a lot of cities in America, Cleveland, Barcelona, they're doing it that way. So is it, is it quite an institutionalised way of thinking over here that councils don't feel obliged to spend that money locally and put it back into the local economy? I think there's just a culture that we think that what big business wants, we should follow, you know. And I think that has been a culture that's been around for 35 years. And, you know, with the collapse of Carillion, and I think Capita's in trouble as well, you know, I think people are thinking again. Carillion was a big outsourcing company. Yeah, of course, yeah. 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 So, you know, so that's why what we're doing is so simple, but it's quite revolutionary with Uh, what we've had for the last 35 years. And tell us about the, what are the results? I mean, how do you measure the results of this? In, in pounds and pence? The results are how people's lives are getting better. You know, I just think it's good to look at things in simple terms. And issues around deprivation are improving in that. We're out of the top, bottom, fifth of uh, the most deprived areas as a council authority. People receiving the real living wage of 8 75 an hour. We're now the best out of Lancashire because of these policies. You know, as I said, so you always pay the living wage in your procurement? You only pay firms who are paying the living wage Yeah, we we encourage it as far as legally possible, and we pay it to our staff as well, but the rest of the public sector pretty much in Preston, besides from the civil service, they pay it as well, like Lancashire Constabulary, Preston College, Community Gateway Association, the Housing Association, they all pay the real living wage, you know, and it's lifting people up, and it's good. And the thing is, Matthew, one of the things that I like about you is you always make it sound quite sort of simple to do, but I I know it hasn't been simple. I mean, if I'm a public sector institution the police, the university, and you come to me with your, you know, responsibility for policy initiatives and all that jazz, and you say to me, well, will you now pay the living wage? Do they not say, did they say, some of them, well, hang on a minute, you know, our budgets are being cut, how can we do that, etc. I mean, how did you persuade them to be part of this? It was really easy. You'll hear from Neil McElroy in a sec, He, he worked with us really well, and what we found is we had a really good bunch of people at the top of these institutions, and they were all really committed to Preston, you know, so that, you know, the, the uh, police and crime commissioner, the university vice chancellor, other people, they thought were really committed, and they could see that the, the city needed improving, they could see that all this money we've been chasing for the last 13 or 14 years wasn't going to come, so they adopted a lot of these ideas. And it's been very, very successful so far, but we want to go further. What we do want is we want our own bank, because... As I said at the beginning of what I said, you know, everyone in our communities across the country, they're putting the money in the major banks. A lot of that wealth is trickling away into distant shareholders. They then don't pay the taxes, you know. So we've got to move to a, a system like they have in Germany, where every single community has a not-for-profit community bank. And we're working on that at the moment. And if we do that, that's a way to regenerate the area, because you're putting more democracy into the local economy. The Bank of Lancashire? Yeah. The Lancashire Bank, yeah. names on a postcard. And, uh, uh, and what would that do? I mean, Millibank. The, no, I don't, <laughs> That's what you were waiting uh, for somebody I mean, to suggest, wasn't well, it? Well, <laughs> it just took you a bit too long. So, uh, uh, um, but, you know, I'm sure Matthew will bear in mind. Um, the Lloyd Bank. Uh, I think that was already done. tried, actually. Um, uh, but it but, um, didn't go so well. But uh, so, so, so what, what, how would that be different? I mean, how would that be different from having NatWest and all of that? Well, I mean, the, the, the bigger banks are withdrawing from our high street. My ward, 30-odd years ago, before I represented it, obviously, you know, that was 
that had four or five branches in. Now they've all disappeared. So within the community I represent, there isn't one of the main banks. And if we had a not-for-profit bank that was owned by the community, I think people get excited about it. We'd have lots of civic pride. And it's a way of fighting back because people have had enough of austerity. They've had enough of neoliberal economics. They've just had enough of it. And the outcomes are dreadful because it's things like life expectancy, early death, mental illness. This all comes from... Uh, inequality, you know, and this is one way at a local level of fighting back by making the economy more democratic and capturing wealth for the community. And, and you believe that even though that deserves a... <laughs> and so the, the interesting thing about this, uh, the thing that really struck me when I came to Preston is you've, you've had a lot less money coming to Preston from central government but overall a lot more money has stayed in Preston. I mean, that's the basic story, isn't it? Yeah, because what we've done is we've realised how every pound counts, especially when you're getting cut back, you know. But a big part of this is to encourage smaller firms to win contracts and also worker-owned businesses and other cooperatives because they keep money, more money in the community. Because if you get big multinationals winning these contracts, you know, they tend to leak out to, to people who aren't in our community, you know. So it's quite a way of being much more resilient and actually fighting back a bit against what we're facing. Can I just give the figures? Because they're really yeah, impressive, yeah. I think. Um, in 2012-13, out of £750 million spent on goods and services by six anchor institutions, 5% was spent in Preston and 39% in Lancashire as a whole. By 2016-17, out of £620 million spent on goods and services, which is a lower amount of money, but the, the percentage is so impressive, 19 was spent in Preston, and 81% in Lancashire as a whole. What's stopping everyone doing this? I think I said it's a cultural thing. People have been conditioned to think things must be done in a certain way. We've had 35 years of neoliberal economics where big corporations have called the shots for too long, I think, you know. And it's not working anymore. I think we do need to have a debate about the kind of economy we want, you know. And can I just ask you one final question before we bring uh, Neil in, which is, um, we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy. Um, and if Jeff, and I obviously don't want to speak for our dear leader, but if, uh, uh, if Jeff made you his cabinet member for social justice, inclusion and policy initiatives uh, in the Jeff cabinet... Um, Are you happy with that position, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he likes yes men and yes women. Uh, uh, what would you do in the Jeffocracy? So, so Jeff calls you in. He's sitting in Downing Street. Uh, you know, he's um, it's a bit of a shock for everyone that he's uh, in charge. Uh, and he calls you in and he says, "Look, you've done this amazing work in in Preston. I'm giving you this uh, job in the cabinet. What, what would you uh, what would you do?" Oh, oh. Uh, I, I think we need more money, so I think we need an end to austerity. Yeah. And I think we need more laws that people can pass at local levels through councils and elsewhere to give people more control of their lives, like, like the Community Land Trust. You know, we need a lot more of that, you know, because you know, we've had, we've had, it's been miserable for the last 35 years, hasn't it? I know it's called reasons to be cheerful, but there's lots of reasons to be miserable as well, haven't there, for the last 35 years? Yeah. But finally, uh, I think we've seen it. I think we see the chink of light. I think out of all the, the, all the problems we've got with a failed economy and austerity, there's some really creative things happen, happening around, which are, you know, reasons to be cheerful. Matthew Brown, thank you so much. <laughs> and now to, uh, to, carry on, to carry on the conversation, Neil McKinroy, who is Chief Executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. Neil. Neil, you, you've heard from uh, Teresa, you've heard from uh, Matthew. Tell us a little bit about the work that Cleese is doing and sort of what, what lessons you draw from Teresa and Matthew and what they've said. Surely, it's uh, Claes, Centre for, Clays. Lo- yeah, yeah, sorry. Center for Local Economic yeah. Strategies. Um, and I suppose we start from a basis that the economy is for us. It's, not, it's, it's a social construct. It's something that we construct as citizens, as communities, And we need to make sure that economy works in the maximum way for us and for people and for places. And of course, we've got a massive problem because the 10 richest men, and they are men, uh, own the same amount of wealth as 50% of the poorest 
there is something going horribly wrong with the economy. If you look at the roots to the economy, it comes from economos, the Greek word, a Greek word that means keeper of the household. It's something that's close to our hearts, and it should be something that we repatriate and bring back home to us, to our communities, to our streets, to uh, people. And so we start from that basis, and what we learn here is that there's an amazing things going on everywhere in many communities, um, not just in the UK, but around the world. And I see at the moment we're seeing a huge let's call it flourishing, human flourishing, where people are saying, no, this is not right. We need to do something different. And at the moment, we've got a huge bit of horizontal human flourishing. But what we don't have at the moment is the vertical power of policy, nation, the nation state or in local state, to actually accelerate that. So in other words, it's being done despite central government. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is almost the social democratic state has stepped back from starting to make, um, make an economy for us. It said, when Tony Blair came into power, I remember paraphrasing, he said, the global economy is a given, we can't do anything about it, we can't buck it, we can't change it. I think that's nonsense. I think the global economy is something that we have to be part of and we need to control and mediate and cajole that serves us, doesn't serve itself. Now, you work around Britain and around uh, Europe, of which Britain is part. Uh, um, for now. Uh, for now. Um, and so tell us sort of a bit about what stands out for you. What are the lessons? I suppose the lessons are is that there's, uh, wherever I go, uh, I always have reasons to be cheerful in any place. I, I, I tend to visit the poorer parts of the country and poorer parts of, of places. But I do see lots of reasons to be cheerful because I see people trying to do things in spite of the system. And there is poster areas, if you like, Preston being one in the UK. I think Barcelona's another. Amazing thing going on there. Well, tell us a bit about Barcelona. Well, in Barcelona, you're seeing a reimagining, economic democracy, a reimagining of what the destiny of Barcelona is. We know it's been a massively successful world city, Olympic Games, etc. But we also see huge social problems, high rates of youth unemployment, gentrification in terms of land and, land and property appreciation that's pushing communities out from Ejample, the north part of Barcelona. And the mayor and uh, the Oncomu party have said, no, we're now going to recalibrate our economy, which is still a global player, still looks for global investment, but is putting a huge amount of energy into social innovation and stuff that's happening in the streets of Barcelona. And they're creating policy platforms to accelerate that energy that we're seeing in Granby and we see in places like Preston. And is that about budgets being controlled by local people? It's, it's probably partly that. I think it's partly about budgets. I think also it's allowing spaces where genuine, honest discussions take place around the economic stewardship of our cities. In, in the England particularly, you're seeing um, uh, things done in our name through the auspices of the local state uh, in terms of developers, in terms of investment, in terms of things that's done in kind of um, uh, quiet rooms somewhere. I think that needs to be open. We need to see the very fabric of our cities, the very nature of our built environment is being controlled by people that are not local. We're seeing huge amounts of wealth coming into our cities and then it's actually being extracted by distant shareholders, possibly from the Cayman Islands or wherever. And where is that wealth going? I think that very nature of how we economically steward a place needs to be democratised, open and transparent. And when it is, we will say, hold on here, I'm not sure we really want that person from the Cayman Islands investing in that place and extracting the wealth in return. So if there's no template for what a, a local economy, no, no single template for what a local economy should look like, what, what are the common threads? I think one of the common threads is that we need to look at a plurality, not a singular ownership of the economy. I think we need to look at small businesses. I think we need to look at co-ops. I think we need to look at community businesses. I think we need to look at the ecosystem, if you like, of an economy. It, at the moment, it's too narrowly held. We need to broaden out that ownership of who has a stake in the economy. And there's another particular important point. I'm one of the, uh, maybe I'm the Scottish and a bit more of a doom-mongerer, but it seems to me that automation as a fundamental challenge. Matthew said the last 35 years have been shit. Now you're going to tell us the next 35 no, years no. are going to be shit. No, I, I, I think there's great hope in openness. Oh, good. Few. And that automation, I think, um, does, is a real big threat. Hitherto, we've assumed that wealth can be 
uh, given to people through being employees, through wages, increasingly through automation will mean there might be less employment. That means we actually need to own the robots. And I think we need different forms of ownership. Those machines cannot be owned by the plutocrats. It has to be owned by us. So I think co-ops and all those other forms of ownership of that automation is a liberating sense. And I think more people have to be owning the capital and the actual ownership of means of production. And if, and if Jeff becomes Prime Minister, which we all hope happens, what should I be as his, hopefully, one of his advisors? Just let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, OK, here. OK. Uh, I, get the, I get the message. I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of people to advise you. But what, what should he be doing to enable you know, what we've heard from Theresa, what we've heard from Matthew, and what, what you're saying. I mean, because it sounds like what you're saying is sort of, you've got a government which isn't enabling this. Now, money is obviously part of it, but it sounds like it goes beyond money. Yeah, I think Jeff, as Prime Minister, would, would actually see local places and the local government as co-directors of the nation. I think the idea that you've got a, a Whitehall, a Westminster that can, in a sense, steward the rest of the country is complete, it's actually laughable. I think you need to see the country as the local state as co-directors. And then what you would do would be create platforms to enable uh, many uh, localities to do the type of things you're seeing in Granby and in Preston. You'd create an enabling environment. I mean, Gordon Brown, for instance, wrote that, actually, um, that white paper, green paper on the governance of Britain. I think just at the end of his government, a very useful paper to actually start to reconsider how we create a fairer nation state which is not driven centrally from Whitehall. I think that would be a good thing and then policy platforms that allow all this good stuff to actually accelerate. Uh, should we take some questions? There may be some questions. Can we have the lights and then see if there are any questions just for our panel? Hi, um, my name's Emily Sporrell. Um, I'm actually a councillor on Liverpool City Council here as well. Excellent. So really great Big round of welcome. applause for that, please. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. So um, Liverpool, we've tried to do a lot of what you've been talking about, um, particularly in sourcing. We've brought a lot of those services like pothole repairs and all of that back in-house to try and make sure that we're getting that value for money. Um, just on the, um, the Lancashire Bank point, one of the things that we did, we've got a lot, quite a strong cooperative group of councillors on, on Liverpool as well, and we've invested quite heavily in the credit unions, um, because obviously they're very much locally owned and very much accessed by the people who were trying to help, um, so I just wonder if there's a bigger role for, for them as well in this. Emily, what's been the effect, keep the microphone, what's been the effect of the insourcing? Well, we've only just taken in that the, the highways has just come in in January, so we're still literally a month ago, so we're still assessing some of that. Um, but we're optimistic it's going to be hopefully better quality, because um, a lot of the, I'm sure people in the audience will know, potholes aren't always repaired and the best in Liverpool. <laughs> um, so we're hoping it's going to be better quality. And also just that we can pay the living wage, we can make sure that they're, um, uh, they're done in the most efficient and effective way according to what we want, as opposed to someone else's schedule. So hopefully there'll be a range of positive benefits. Thank you so much, that's very good. And there's a, a microphone, a gentleman at the front. Hi there, uh, Sean, um, I'm here, I'm president at the Guild. <laughs> <laughs> that's President Sean. Mr. Yes. President. President, Mr. President. Yes. Uh, no, you don't have to call me that, Ed. <laughs> oh, well, it wasn't Mr. Prime Minister. It's got a certain ring to it. Um, I had a question um, based on a thing we do here at the Guild and how we allocate funding to our societies. And we have a system called Spend It, and it's a system of participatory budgeting. Mm -hmm. So we set up all our societal budgets, um, and then the student societies get to decide amongst themselves by a method of consensus decision-making, who gets what money. And I wondered, you know, Greater Manchester Police tried this out a few years ago, and I wondered if any of you, and Neil particularly from here and across Europe, if you had any experience... How's it working, system. Mr President? It's working brilliantly here, yeah. I think these are great innovations, and I think we just need more and more of them. I think what the problem we have is that they're, um, they're done in spite of the system. I'd like, as a policy geek, I suppose, I'd like to see a policy platform that allows them to be every day... And, and, and done in, in student unions but also across local authorities more generally uh, and other bits of the public services. I think that's just one method of many other forms of method how you allow greater economic democracy within our public wealth but hopefully also in terms of commercial and private wealth too. We've got one last question I think in the third, fourth row. Hi. 
as a like person who, who living in a community, what's the best way for me to start to be involved in projects like the ones in Grantham and involved in? Where do you life? live? Um, here in Liverpool. Okay, well, that's a really interesting. What's your name? Tine. That's a really good question, and I think it's quite a good question to end on. Lots of people, either in the audience hearing this uh, or listening at home, will be thinking to themselves, "Well, look, all this sounds great, but you know, I, I don't live in Granby or Preston." How do, I, how do I bring this to my community? What do I do? What we always look for is someone who can... You can't guarantee for life, obviously, but who can be fairly regular and, and dedicate a certain amount of time each week for, a, for, for the medium term, which is something we're always looking for. Matthew? I'd say join a trade union or get involved if you're, if you're religious because a lot of the churches are behind these kind of initiatives and ideas. They think, they think it's a really good thing or potentially get involved in politics and stand for office. You know what I mean? I think the more we have down-to-earth grassroots people put themselves forward to be part of you know, councils and parliament, I think all the better. You know? I think England particularly needs to recapture its progressive uh, spirit. There is an alternative. It's out there. It's happening every day. I think secondly... Join stuff, commune, work with other people in your local place. And thirdly, ask the local council, where are you spending your money and is it actually benefiting local people? Thanks to Theresa, Matthew and Neil. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW. Right, please welcome to the stage this brilliant comedian. As I mentioned before, he's recently had a series on Radio 4, which you can hear on iPlayer. He's about to go on tour around the country. He's absolutely fantastic. It's Tez Ilias. Tez, we were just chatting and you were a civil servant and you gave it all up for comedy. Yeah, for my sins, I got into the um, civil service graduate program, the Fast Stream. So, was it always the Home Office you were in? Yes. And who did, who were the Home Secretaries that you worked for then? Um, it started off with who was the angry Scottish one for you guys? Uh, doesn't narrow it down very much. <laughs> uh, uh, Gordon Brown, John Reed, Alistair John Darling. Reed. Uh, John no, Reed. Yes. Right. Yeah. John Reed. Um, and then we had. Um, um, I wasn't an insult to Scottish people, the by the way. Right. The lady whose husband watched porn. Um, I, I don't think that's the way we refer to Jackie Smith, is, actually. Yeah, Jackie Smith. Uh. It's actually a quiz. This is, this is a quiz. It's just how I answer the questions. It's just how I ask the questions. 
Uh, well done. Uh, and for, for a million pounds. Um, um, and then it was the very stable um, working class. Uh, Alan Johnson. Yes, well right. done. You're on a roll. I mean, I, I'm, I'm suffering from Alzheimer's here. Yeah. Um, and then Theresa May for seven years. Right. Which, and you and know how what, would you describe her? What was crazy about Theresa? Because I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very much not on their side politically. Um, but she had a reputation for being a very competent Home Secretary, which is laughable to think now. <laughs> but she did. That was her reputation. She got stuff done. I... In my dealings with Theresa May, she was, also, she was always very polite and nice, but I didn't like, I didn't like, I didn't like her policies. Right. Uh, and, and that's, and that's and, why you and left. That, and that's, well, I ultimately left because I was too funny for the place. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> I made, a, I made a, a satirical short for the BBC called The Go Home Office. Um, <laughs> and the premise... <laughs> the premise... While you were working for Theresa May? <laughs> while I was working for her, and... The that pre- is some achievement, <laughs> honestly. The, 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 the premise of this, of this, of this five-minute short was that a far-right government of, say, Britain First, that type of institution, uh, became the government, and they re- relabeled the Home Office as the Go Home Office. Uh, and my character worked there with no sense of irony as to his position. Um, and, in the, and in the particular short, which is available on YouTube, if you tap in Go Home Office, uh, Nish Kumar's character comes in, and, and he's to defend why all Asians must be allowed to stay in Britain. And my character's just got no sense of irony about his position there. It was, it was fun. And then they found out about that. And then they did it with the van. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was kind of, it was kind of inspired so by they, the van. they kind of watched it on yeah. YouTube and thought, we'll send that van Yeah, it was like around, life imitating like, art, yeah, imitating yeah, yeah. life. Um, and then they found out about that and didn't find it f- funny. Is... And what did they what did they say to you? Did you get called in? Yeah, I got called into a meeting and they were like, So you, you made this thing and this it's it's, it's, it's contravened home office um, guidelines. And no I, shit show. And I was like and I was like, What's what's the issue? Is it not funny? Is it too funny? What's what, where's the problem here? But I, I was thinking of leaving anyway. I wanted to go on a sabbatical at the time, but that was out the window and I was kind of we be, we, we came to an agreement where I would I would resign and there'd be no disciplinary. So we're now like a fucking rock star. Yeah. <laughs> and it's working out for you. Yeah, it's working out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm having a good uh, sense. So you've brought along some ideas which could be uh, potential reasons to be cheerful. So my first idea is a platform accessible by a lift 20 miles above Earth so we can conclusively prove that it is flat. Round. Round. <laughs> that, is, that is round. Um, do you not think the sort of person who is still going around saying that the earth is flat, they're not going to be convinced by this. They will find some reason to not believe in it. Sure, but I'd like to go with them and just be like, <laughs> <laughs> So they don't even believe like the pictures taken from the space probes or there was, there's anything? Some, there's all a big conspiracy. I don't, know, I don't know what the conspiracy is exactly, but it's, it's, there's a conspiracy. Yeah, what is the, who are the vested interests? The Illuminati? I don't, I'm not of sure. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any of the Illuminati in tonight? Yeah, a few of them in. Yeah, as always. Yeah. They follow you everywhere. Yeah. I did have this voter ask me once whether I worship the devil, and, uh, and I was campaigning for Caroline Flint and in Doncaster, and he said he would vote for Caroline Flint, but then he said to me, uh, I've just got one question to ask you. Do, do you people at the top worship the devil? Um, and would that and make him more or less likely to vote for you? <laughs> I think he sort of said, you've got my vote, but I need to ask you a very personal question. <laughs> Doesn't which, bother me one way or the is, other vote Do you vote worship wise? the devil? And I said, no, um, which I thought was a better answer to give <laughs> rather than the honest answer. And then... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then... And then he said, and I said, did you get it from the internet? And he said, yes, but I've stepped away from it. So, uh, I, I don't know. So then I left. Mm. Mm. Wow. But maybe he believed in flat earth as well. I don't think the Probably. platform thing would convince him, though. Okay. Did you have another one? Yeah, sure. Um, slides, not lifts. Oh. Although we need lifts to go up. So I haven't really thought this through. But... At least the option of having slides to come down everywhere. How, how do you feel about that? Because you're not good with inanimate, inanimate objects, and I imagine a slide falls into that category. What do you mean? What, what? Like chairs. And I'm quite sort of accident prone, is basically what Jeff is saying. 
So I'd probably sort of fall off the slide or kind of <laughs> graze you know, yourself. Worse than graze but as myself. As long as someone was filming that, it'd be all good, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, the slides. Mm. Go on. So the House of Commons with slides? Yeah, all of that. I, I thought even I was working in the Home Office because um, we. You proposed that, did you, in the suggestions box? Yeah, I did. Box. I did. It was. Along with the go home office film. <laughs> it's so odd that they wanted to get rid of you. I know, it's really weird. It's like I did no value there. Yeah. Um, I think I once had I got into an elevator with the permanent secretary, the person, the, the, the most senior civil servant in a department is called the permanent secretary. You didn't of, say to him, shouldn't we have slides rather I than I said lift? to him, can we use, can we have some balconies that run outside the home, that on, on the fifth floor we have some balconies that we weren't allowed to use because someone might jump off and then that's a PR disaster. Yeah. So I said, so my two <laughs> things, my two policy ideas to the most senior civil servant in the home office was, can we use the balcony please and can we get slides? <laughs> what did he say? He, he said, I'll think about it. And then I don't think they've got slides or use of the balcony yet, so... He's still thinking about it. So it's a bit the funny cons- thing is... The fact that they got rid of me is a big conspiracy, the, I think. The funny thing is that I sort of... I had not been under the impression that the way fast-stream civil servants got noticed and got promotion was by suggesting slides to the permanent secretary in the lift, but I was obviously wrong about that. Um, I, I, I did... Um, when it came to diversity, it was more than just my colour of skin. It was also my thought of ideas. <laughs> it was just very, very left field. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear my final one? Oh, Go yeah, on. yeah. Um, I, I Tezilias, uh, should be the next lead in Doctor Who. Oh, you're saying that? you should be the next Doctor? Yeah. After Jodie Whittaker? Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, times are changing. Yeah. Um, we've got first female Doctor Who, which I, Doctor in Doctor Who, which I, which I welcome. I think Jodie Whittaker's an amazing actress. Um, you know, there's, there's a black actress playing Hermione in the Harry Potter play in the West End. She's amazing. The play is amazing. I've seen it. Um, humble brag. Um, you know, there's talks of a black actor to play James Bond. And everyone's like, yes, Lenny Henry should be James Bond. <laughs> and why not? After all, he's so good in that program, Luther. Then why not just, you know? So I don't have an issue with that, but then I am a very progressive person. So I think I should be the very first ever Asian doctor. And what's your... uh... (laughs) Are we into that idea? (laughs) Yeah, we should get some suggestions from you. We sent you an email. I don't know if you saw it the other day, just saying if you had any suggestions. It's a safe space here, so if your ideas aren't amusing, don't worry, you're in good company with Jeff. Uh, uh, Hello, what's your name? And where are you from, Emma? I'm from Wigan. Fantastic. My um, idea for a better world was to have like um, we could all work four days a week and on our fifth day we'd do some sort of volunteering in our communities to make them better places four would definitely I'm definitely in favour of the four day week yeah and I think by volunteering um, does Netflix count as volunteering (laughs) then yes I'm in favour four day week yeah okay Uh, we buy that definitely any more hi hello what's your name Becky hi Becky Um, my idea is a it's cafes around the country where people can go and speak to people of different opinions. Oh, such a good idea. Because, this. like, I love listening to this and the other things that I listen to that are quite left. But it would be nice to listen to people that have different opinions than, to me and think about what they think. That is such a good idea. I think this is such a good idea. Do you think... <laughs> So, okay, uh, just to think about the practicalities of this, because maybe we can set up a chain here. Uh, um, Ed and Jeff's... Well, what are we going to call them, first of all? I mean, how do, you get, how do you make sure that people don't go in and talk to their friends, you know, who I, they agree with? I think different sides of the table. I, I think you might have, like they say, if, like maybe red chairs and blue chairs. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or a right side and a wrong yeah, side? I, actually... I, <laughs> I shouldn't be sharing this because I think I could do this, couldn't I? You're not. You seem sceptical. No, I, I think I like it up to a point. Yeah, go on. Because, no offence. Yeah. But large portions. Okay, I'm going to whisper this to you, Ed. Large portions of the general public are awful. <laughs> <laughs> Just between you and me. 
But you see, okay, well, look, maybe you think I have to say this, and I sort of do, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I also, but I, in this case, I also believe it. I mean, look, the one thing I'll say about being leader of the Labour Party, having been, I'm, I know I'm no longer, uh, the one thing about having been leader of the Labour Party is that you get a much, much more positive view of human nature and of people than you would get from reading the Daily Mail, The Sun, or lots of other newspapers. Actually, now, maybe it's self-selecting that people who come up to you tend to be supportive of you, but even if people who aren't supportive of you tend to be quite nice and, and they're much less angry and horrible than they are on social media. And I think the point about Becky's point is that actually human interaction is often a lot better than you know, internet interaction. You don't I agree, I agree. No, I, I concede the point, Ed. I concede. I think we're out of time. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Teresa, Matthew and Neil for our excellent discussion on community regeneration. Big round of applause for them, please. And thanks to Tez. Tez is going to be out on tour starting later this month. Yes, so I'll go on tour from March the 27th around the country. I'm in Liverpool on Saturday, 14th of April, so please do come. Um, TezIlias.com for all the dates. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I've had, I've had a great time. And what's the video? And remind us of the YouTube video. I'm going to go and watch it uh, now. The Go Home Office. The Go Home Office. And your, yeah. seri- your Radio 4 series? It's called Tez Talks. Um, and that is available, thank you, and it's available on BBC. It took you a long time to think that one up. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the current, the new show is called Testify. It's good to have just... a name. Is that your real name, by the way? Uh, Tez is show for Tez Z. But basically, I'm working up to Tezington, the world of adventures. That's the show. <laughs> that's the show I'm working up to. Thank you, Tez Ilias. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.